Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. As always, I'm your host, Brandy Miller, and I just wanted to, on the front end, thank everyone who has subscribed, rated, reviewed, and joined our Patreon. Because of the Patreon, we're actually moving toward making videos and producing broader content for you to help you reclaim your theology as we do. Today is a little bit of a change of pace as I am joined by Sandra Van Opstel to talk about worship. We talk about how the values that we've discussed so far in the podcast are embodied in worship, more specifically musical worship in predominantly white spaces. In this, we reflect on various practices in these white spaces and you might hear critiques of practices, styles, and songs that have been formative, important, or deeply meaningful to you. This conversation isn't to take that away from you, but rather to recognize that a single expression of worship is insufficient to fully encompass who God is and what God is about. It is instead to recognize the ways that white supremacy has, in effect, idolized white worship, sometimes over God, God's self. We must pay careful attention to the ways that worship itself has been captive to tools and practices of white supremacy. These tools most certainly include commodification, capitalism, and industrialization. We will likely, in this episode, mention your problematic fave, and I do that not to demonize necessarily, but rather to name that we are responsible for the toxic things we support, are a part of, and let shape who we know God to be and the practices that come out of that. So with that casual intro, enjoy this conversation about worship. So yeah, I really um, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate your time a ton. It's such a gift to have you on here today. <laughs> it's great to be here. So, uh, right, you're an author, speaker, pastor, you've done all kinds of things, but I would love for you to describe for folks who don't know who you are, Sandra, what does it mean to be you? (laughs) Um, Well, I am first and foremost the daughter of two immigrants that came from Latin America, and I think that profoundly shapes who I am and what I do and what I care about and how I do what I do. I am a neighbor. Um, I live on the west side of Chicago, and I live, and I work, and I congregate, and I neighbor all within a one-mile radius. So I'm a person who really believes that you can only talk about things so much that you have to be able to um, speak out of what you live and that you have to live what you speak. So Mm. I think that's the most important things about me. I have a lot of energy. So I like to do a lot of things at once. I like to spin a lot of plates at one time. And I'm not saying that I do any one of them and, you know, really great, but I like to do a lot of things at one time. I have like a ton of interests and um, ultimately I think um, I just want to change the world. Casually. (laughs) Well, I love that. So I think that goes into the question I always ask every guest too, is what is your sense of vocation? What, what do you want to see happen in the world and how does your work inform that? Well, I want to see the world be a more just place. I mean, I, I want to continue the revolution of making this world a, a, a better place and to see God's peace reigning and to see people's lives flourishing. And I think everything I do is probably towards that end, um, which is probably why I don't sleep a lot. (laughs) Because I've got a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I think for me, it means trying to really give the church, so not necessarily the local church, although I do work in the context of a local church, I think giving God's people a sense of what life ought to be like. So Mm -hmm. training and speaking and mentoring and provoking and disrupting, you know, anything that could wake people up to what we're really supposed to be like in the world and who God is and what God's world is supposed to be like and how we ought to play a role in that. So I think everything I do is probably towards that end and it really manifests itself mostly in like speaking and teaching and training and mentoring and some of it's just like neighboring and taking people to appointments and visiting the hospital and all the things we're supposed to be doing. (laughs) Yes, 
I love that. I think that sometimes when folks move into speaking and writing and all of that stuff, it's easy to become so abstracted from the ground that we are irrelevant and useless. And so I love that your intersection is a vocation is around changing the world through, yeah, all of that stuff that you do that you probably like make your money doing, but then neighboring and raising two five-year-olds, which I <laughs> cannot imagine. So <laughs> yeah, me neither. I started late, so I don't know if I'm doing it right, but, um, but I'm doing it in community. So I'm getting some help. That sure helps. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I think I, it's not just that it bothers me, it actually infuriates me when people speak to and write on and even just, even if they have lots of studying in that area, it like, it, it irritates me when people pontificate on things they have no idea, like they're not proximate to, they don't understand, they don't know, you know, like they don't mm -hmm. know. Um, and so for me, it's, and that was true even like in my early years and my early ministry years, I was always like, I don't want to be like those kind of people that just like preach and talk about stuff and blah, 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 and talk about it. And like when you look at their life, their life doesn't align at all with what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think I really wanted to find myself in a place where there was a, a lifestyle I was living that I could speak from. And I may not be doing it right, but at least I can speak to the journey of how I'm trying to do it from the space yes. that I'm trying to do it in and um and i think especially as someone who um is you know is pastoring and is neighboring in a context that is so so diverse socioeconomically i find it even more irritating now because the people that oftentimes have the mic or we have the luxury or you know whatever access of doing our own podcasts writing our own books you know, kind of speaking and writing into the public square, the more we do that, the more and more separated we become from the people we're actually writing for. And I like I have congregants and leaders here locally who've been like, yeah, it's really nice all the things your friends write, but they don't know. It's clear they don't live here. It's clear they're not experiencing yes. this. Like, that's fine if they want to read a bunch of books on it. And once a long time ago, they had a connection to it, but they're not messaging us the way we would talk about ourselves. Yes. And so that's been huge for me to say like do I have integrity in what I'm saying on issues of you know asset-based development or on issues of advocacy and justice or on issues of immigration or whatever it is if if I don't have connections to people that can like call me you know and be like yeah. no Sandra that's not how we yeah. would say it at all or really nice try baby but no that's not what we think so so I do have a lot of those you know really polite some people are polite to me. Some people aren't. I do have a <laughs> yeah. lot of people that they know me locally, so they, they're not impressed yeah. by me. You know, I think that's the big yes. thing. Like, they are not impressed by the work that I do. <laughs> yes. I feel like all of us need people who are just utterly unimpressed by the work that we do. Because <laughs> I think that does provide a safeguard in some ways from one of my biggest values is to make sure that I am not theorizing people out of their own experiences or theologizing people out of their own experiences. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you're trying to prevent from happening in your neighboring, as you say. Yeah, and I and, and it's interesting because my even my education has been kind of separated by periods of different kinds of ministry. So I I went to undergrad and then I came on staff with a campus ministry. Then I was on staff with the campus ministry doing work with students on you know like speaking to people who were suspicious about faith, trying mm -hmm. to help people connect Jesus and just doing all the work. And then I went to seminary and I heard how people actually think people that aren't in the church believe. And I'm like, oh, y'all have not spent any time uh -huh. in the streets, have you? You know, like, so I, I went and got the MDiv and then I went into, that was during the time I was running the urban program in Chicago and doing kind of 
partnership ministries connecting and networking nonprofits and churches and students. And then I went to pastor in a local church and it's like all the things that I used you learned in seminary did not make sense in this setting mm-hmm. and I had to like repackage the things I was going to do and just relearn everything really and um, even like though I had been preaching for example in a very diverse racial and cultural setting it wasn't really racially it wasn't really socioeconomically diverse mm-hmm. and so everybody there was like there to get a college degree they were there to be upwardly mobile no matter where they came yeah. from they were headed somewhere else um, yes. and so when I came to the local church, I was like, oh, now I have like a 65-year-old with a third grade education and a 12-year-old who's rolling his eyes at me and someone who had been formerly incarcerated and somebody yep. who like, I'm just looking at all the different, you know, and someone who has a master's degree. I mean, they're all just so different. And I'm like, how do I do this intergenerational cross-class talking about Jesus in a way that's relevant to all these people? So I had to relearn again. And then, you know, now... I'm back in school while I'm also working. So I think every time it's given me a chance to go, oh, oh, yeah, like that's that's how we say it when we're going to write a paper. But that's not how we say it when we're talking to people. So anyway, I, I think that's been probably a grace to my life that I've been in and out of school along the way instead of just becoming educated, quote unquote, formally, and then then trying to do something with it. Yeah, as though hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of education makes you a better neighbor. Like it, it just doesn't play out that way. But I think a lot of people who follow Jesus have been, I think because of some of the ways that white supremacy plays out in hierarchy, that we believe that hierarchy is attached to education. And so the more education you have, the more hierarchy you have, therefore the more authority you have. And I hear your story breaking the mold that's put out by white supremacist culture in that in that way. Yeah, and I think it's actually caused a lot of problems for me, even in communities of color, to be frank with you, because I find that when (laughs) in the spaces I'm in, the folks of color are like me, you know, like there are people who have probably gone in that route, have become educated, many, we have multiple degrees, have spun, and so I'm like saying things like, we're not the people to be speaking on this issue, we need to be able to share our platforms. So it's the same thing that white people, that we would tell white people about people of color, Mm -hmm. people of color who kind of buy into that really like you said it's a system of white supremacy that says the expert is the one who's educated the expert is the one with the credential the expert is the one with the degree then we expertize you know certain people and we marginalize other people and we end up doing that same thing i mean i know i have i'm just confessing i know it's a journey for me so i have to constantly be like yeah you're right what does it look like to do this in a way that really reclaims the values of my community because the Latina community doesn't do this, doesn't do it this way. We value first and foremost, the voice of the abuela, the yes. matriarch of the family. And from there, everything else organizes itself. Uh, those who have experienced are those who know. Yes. Those with gray hair are those who know. You know, that has its downfalls too, uh, if you're young and, and you're trying to do something and they keep telling you to be quiet. But I think <laughs> that in some senses, it's trying to reclaim and deconstruct the things that we learned as folks who are who have been formally trained in Western institutions, which yes. I mean, it's very hard to find a place where that's not true. <laughs> so yeah, so and, and it's it's interesting because the other day I was uh, we were with our small group, and two of the young girls that were there were the daughters of the mothers that were in our small group. Like it was kind of like small group family time, and they're like nineteen twenty. They're like, yeah, you know, every time I go to a small group with 
certain group of people, like every time I go to a small group, all they do is like pick apart the scriptures. They just like, I don't agree with you. And they argue and they argue and they argue. And I know they're, they're inner varsity trained. Okay. I trained yes. them. I think I personally trained all of them. <laughs> um, and it's like, they hold the scriptures like far away and they observe the passage and they observe the thing, but they don't let the Holy Spirit actually penetrate their heart or they're not looking for transformation. That's not what they, what that, this is what mm. they observed, you know? It's like they just want to criticize and critique and analyze and deconstruct and all this kind of stuff. And I, was, I just like looked at them and I started laughing. And I, I mean, I was laughing, not even like I was hysterically laughing. And I looked at them and I said, um, you too will be like this after you get educated. Like, this is, and I, it just, this is what college teaches us to do. Like it teaches us to hold things at a distance to become objective, quote unquote, observers as if we could be objective, and to look at things from afar in a way to critique, to criticize, to analyze, which I think, you know, in in some respects, it's important to have. I just, my first thought was, yeah, that's what school does to you. Yes, it it tells us that our brains alone can free us or that our brains alone can help us make sense of what's happening in our bodies when our bodies and our experiences and our families and our legacies are trying to tell us like, words alone can never save or free you, which I think Jesus would agree with. And so even as I think about, even as I think about that, I realize that we are consistently being in the spirit of the podcast and trying to reclaim our theology from white supremacy. We're consistently, especially as we're educated, being further indoctrinated into white supremacy. And I'm excited to have you on because I think as we've been breaking down individual values and expressions, I think it's pretty easy to fall into that category of just like using our brains to try to save us from the other construct that our brains got us into to begin with. But I know that you have thought a lot about worship and you and I are on some projects together around worship and and things like that. But what I think is interesting and what I've been considering lately is that worship in white space in some ways is a thing that like penetrates through that like brain space a little bit to try to, I don't even think we're trying to give people an embodied experience, but it's what ends up happening. But what has happened is that because we've intersected white supremacy values in worship, it seems like we've just created a pathway to indoctrinate whiteness further through the practice of worship. And so I would love for you to help us to understand a little bit about what white supremacy looks like in worship and how you see that playing out. Because I do think that there's a strong connection between what we're talking about in this education, life of the mind, continued kind of indoctrination into that way, and the worship that we say that we embody or want to how we would say give to God, express, embody. Yeah, I mean, you know, my my life's my life's passion is to help people to imagine what worship, what an expression to God and about God, and in the presence of God would look like for each community had we not been colonized in our forms of worship. Like, I don't know what mm. that is. I don't know that I could tell other people what that is, but I think my my like life's passion is to say, if God would have shown up in every space in a way that we didn't need someone else to come and interpret God for us, if it hadn't been missionaries, mm-hmm. if it hadn't been, which I'm, I'm not saying I'm like totally against people sharing Jesus and going places, and I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm just, if it hadn't come the way it did, if it hadn't come with white supremacy and with mm-hmm. colonization and with capitalism and with genocide and with rape and with all the things that it came with, if it hadn't come that way, what would people's expression to God have looked like? What beauty could they have mm-hmm. brought? What gift could they have offered to us? What good ha- gift ha- could we have offered to one another if we had not been 
oppressed, you know, in that way. Um, and if we had not been caged yeah. in our uh, understanding of who God is and even who Jesus is and who Jesus was, one really vivid example that kind of gets at like why I do what I do is I, I was visiting a mentor in Uganda and in Kampala and I was just visiting. I mean, I had no, I wasn't like on a project or I was just visiting. And we went, he took me to this um, artist's collective, like collaborative that they have there where they go around the, the country of Uganda and they find from every province the, the most gifted artists, dancers and spoken word artists and, you know, the musicians. And they bring them to, to Kampala, to this um, art institute, to create art together and to teach one another the songs and the dances and the stories of their people, of, the, of all the tribes um, and the people groups of of Uganda. Really well done, fantastic art. And then they put on these dinner theater things for guests that come as a way of, I think that's how they get their revenue. They have like, you know, they put on the, and they tell their stories. It's like three hours long. And you have dinner and you watch, they take you through all their kind of folklore, you know, folk dances and folk stories. And, and each one of the tribes and people groups gives you their courting rituals, you know, like does a section that's their courting rituals. Yeah. And um, it was the most amazing, beautiful, spiritual experience I ever had. And I was there with my husband, my mentor, his wife and my, and my son, who at the time was, was three and um, he loved it so much. I mean, he clapped and he danced and he, and I just thought even for his little mind to be taking in all of these colors and sounds and instruments and you know, the way the body moves, you know, all those things. And around that experience, um, I had, I'd gone to all these church services and in every single case, aside from one, it looked, sounded, and was presented to me exactly like you would find in, in a Western country in one of the three large mega church, you know, worship movements. I mean, it, the women sounded the same, the men, it was like, and I just kept thinking like, why in the world would an African woman with her voice, you know, ever want to squeeze her voice into a tiny little CCM, you know, kind of white, you know, little, like, why would they want to do that? Why, what would compel someone to do that? And I mean, obviously I know the answers to that, but I was so sad. I was so sad. And then... And I was angry and I couldn't be like, well, you guys are colonized. You need it. I mean, that's not my job. So um, I just kind of was in my sure, sadness yeah. and processing with my mentor. And then when we went to this event, I just, I lamented and I grieved. Like I, I actually, as much as I enjoyed it for months and months after that, I just couldn't, couldn't take away from my, my heart really this feeling of sadness that there could have been so much more understanding for us on this as not as non-Africans for myself of who God is and what God's world is about and what it means to worship Jesus if that had not been taken from them and considered inappropriate to bring into worship. So I'm just trying to reclaim, like I'm just trying to reimagine and reclaim a, an expression of not just worship as it pertains to music, but how we do our lives in response to who God is mm -hmm. in the church so that we can be mm -hmm. free, all of us liberated, not just the people yeah. who aren't allowed to do their thing, but all of us um, to be free. So that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I just think that there's more. I believe there's more. Well, I hear some of, in some of what you're saying that in order to reclaim our theology from really white worship, um, what you call CCM or Christian contemporary music, as a lot of us know it, 
requires a reclaiming of our whole selves. Like it sounds like in that event that you went to that you're seeing this holistic, historic, embodied thing that's happening that in the fullness of it, worship is found. And so I think for a lot of folks, we may actually not know the ways that whiteness has impacted the contemporary worship experience. Because you said, you know, I know why this African woman would feel like she needs to kind of compress her voice into this white style. Can you help people understand why might that be? Why might folks lean into kind of the colonizing implications of whiteness and of Christian contemporary music and worship? Why might that happen? Or what does that look like? Well, I think fundamentally at the bottom of that is just white supremacy. Inter- it's internalized. It's racism. It's like who you are is not good. Who I am is good. So I think mm-hmm. you could do some exploring on uh, some of the topics that Willie Jennings talks about in the Christian imagination of looking like when we dis- when Europeans made Jesus a disembodied figure, when Christianity became disembodied from place, like an actual physical place, we don't realize that the stories of the characters that we're listening to, the history and the foundation and legacy of our faith is rooted and grounded in a brown people, period. Not just a brown people, but a marginalized people. Not just the marginalized people, but in a specific space with a specific culture. So it would have been Near Eastern, indirect, communal, hierarchical. I mean, like on the cultural value scales, every single one of those 10 things would have been different than white Americans, every single one of those. And so we have to do the work of being able to build a bridge to scripture and to, and to the history of our faith from our culture. But because we don't want to do that work, because people didn't want to do that work, they just took it and put it in their own culture. So Jesus is now white and Christianity is now capitalism and all those other things. So I think fundamentally mm-hmm. it's because we believe that in order to be Christian, we must be circumcised. You know, like we believe that in order to be Christian, mm-hmm. we must practice faith a certain way. And so we were told that our dances were inappropriate because they were attached to voodoo or they were attached to different forms of ancestor worship and drum isn't inappropriate because the drum is attached to and so we were told that our instruments were bad that our dancing was bad that our the way the way that we dressed was bad god forbid we would show our bodies to somebody you know like i mean when we were there at the at the dancing for example in uh, in uganda there were lots of parts of the body that were seen and i wasn't like covering up my son's eyes or my husband's eyes i was like that is beauty that's beauty now if, if people want to pervert yeah. that in some way that's something else but we are made to feel that who we are is second class and inappropriate and mm-hmm. wrong. And I think if you're told that long enough for enough centuries and enough decades and enough generations, you literally internalize it so deeply that you're, you you yes. don't even know you're doing it. You, you literally don't know you're doing it. And so I think they're thinking like, we want to be cool, like Elevation Church, or we want to be cool, like Bethel or Maverick. Or we want to be cool, like list them all, whatever. They want to be cool. And what they mean is we want to be like, pop culture we want to be like european Mm -hmm. we want to be like american we want to be like and if we do that then we're on the right track so i think it has to do with and i don't think it's conscious i think fundamentally Mm -hmm. it's it's subconscious and it has to do with you feeling like the only way you can be acceptable is to be just like everybody else and i think any of us that are folks of color who've grown up in a white suburb or a white space we know that we know that very deeply and those folks that are in between cultures and are biracial or multicultural in their own skin, they know that feeling of, you know, who I am is not acceptable to anyone, any one side. So I think that's fundamentally it. And I think in, it could be, it happened like, let's say in popular culture or modern culture, but it has its roots, for example, in the mission movement to Africa, you know, to all the countries of Africa mm-hmm. before they were countries and 
actually how they got to be countries was all through that movement. You know, like there is the Christian force, the Christian and business force that came and told people who, who they were, where they should live, what they should call themselves, how they should mm-hmm. wear, how they should dance, how they should worship, who they should worship and what they should, you know, like, so I think that yeah. happened and we're inheritors of that. I think fundamentally that's what, what it is. It's people are like, they're inheritors of their history. That's in there. It's almost like it's in our bodies and we don't know it. We don't know it. It has many, many implications, but I think, I think the bottom line is if we just copy what they're doing, we will be acceptable. Like we, we have to have yes. a certain stage. We have to set up on like literally how they set up on the stage was the same. Where they put the instruments was the same. Yeah. What it sounded like was how this how the um the technician was mixing the sound was the same. Yeah. I was like, I don't understand. I came here to learn, you know, and now I find that this is the result of what we have done as Americans in the world around us. I mean, it's the yes. McDonald's effect, you know, it's a Starbucks effect. Sad sad what it makes it hard is i can't come in and be like you shouldn't be doing (laughs) yes yeah absolutely not you can't use colonizing impulses to decolonize a space well and it sounds like one of the things that you're saying even in the mcdonald's effect as you've just said is that a lot of christian contemporary music or white worship is so deeply tied with capitalism that it gets exported globally in pretty substantial ways And I know that we've been thinking about this a lot. 70% of the top 200 songs sung in Christianity are written by the same 12 people now, I believe is what it is. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. And they all have, I was doing some research and I think that those, well, one, those folks bank 70% of the global revenue for Christian music. They take songs, like even I think about Waymaker, right, written by a beautiful Nigerian woman and then exported through the lenses of whiteness like a million times. She's not making the primary money off of it, but I think about folks like Matt Redman or Chris Tomlin or Joel Houston or Jasons or Jonas's or Stevens or Brian's or Chris's who are making so much money off of this worship enterprise and are exporting whiteness in so many different ways. And so I would love if we could express a little bit, what does white worship look like? Because I think it has a, (laughs) I think most of us know it when we see it. I think naming the thing for what it is is really helpful. So one of the things that I think about a lot is, as I talked with Dr. Andy Woodley last week, we talked about dualism and how the life of the mind gets elevated. And so, so much of white worship for me is just a singing theology that we already believe out into the air somehow, and that we just abstract our theology and then we abstract our worship far away from us. And to me, Spencer said in a few a few episodes ago that a lot of it's just like, I sing about how trifling I am and how bad I am and how much I need the atonement and how much God loves me. And so I love if we could work out together a little bit. What does this kind of worship look like? I know you said stuff about the setup of it, the sound of it, but if we could fill that out a little bit, I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think looking at the themes of how, well, I, I think, okay, so in the the studies of worship, for example, typically you learn that there is like the expression of worship, there's the form of worship, they're like so expression would be like what it feels like or what it kind of looks like the form is like how it's structured and then there's like the essence of worship what it's for Mm -hmm. you know and i forgot the other one but um they argue a lot of times that sometimes that like when you're thinking about diverse worship or cultural worship or worship in culture you're really talking about expression and form 
And I argue that actually we're talking about mm-hmm. essence and theology. Like, I, fine, we can talk about expression and form, but I'm not talking, I'm really not talking about what it sounds like or what it feels like. What I'm trying to address typically when I'm working with folks or in my writing is what is the essence of worship and what is the theology of that worship? What is the story and the narrative that's being told? So, for example, I don't think that people in congregations in our community, they don't come to church to be informed. Mm-hmm. They are informed, but that's not why they're dragging themselves yeah. there. And and they, they don't merely come to church to be inspired, although they need to be inspired. Mm-hmm. That's not why they're dragging themselves there. They're dragging themselves there because they believe that when they come together to remind themselves and rehearse and practice discipline, spiritual disciplines together, that they actually encounter God together. There is a a spiritual kind of almost sacramental experience that happens that God's presence actually dwells with them in that Mm -hmm. space. So they come to church expecting an encounter, like encounter with God. I don't think that's why people go to worship. I think they're going there to feel God, to like remember God, to love Jesus, Mm -hmm. because every song is like a love song to Jesus, (laughs) because Jesus is my best friend. And we're so close. And yeah, so I think the essence is different. Like yeah. I, I actually believe people go to church for different reasons. People go to worship, for example, uh, why you turn your, you know, like you would go into a prayer closet, for example, all the the, the grandmothers in our church have their prayer closets. Yeah. They go there not because they have things they feel need to be said into the air. Yeah. They go there because they're taught that that is where they can encounter the living yes. God and that the creator God who spoke the universe into being is the same spirit that dwells within them. And so that's why they do it. And I think that that is lost when we when we only follow one form or way of worship because that even though we're not in, we could be listening to the song on the radio or hearing the prayer practice or reading the, the liturgy in the book, the place from where it comes actually is very important yes. in shaping and creating the theology that comes out of it. And I think theologically speaking, I mean, listen to the, look at all the lyrics of the worship songs. If you, people have, are doing studies on this, like you said, they're, it's like the songs are, f- first of all, try to find a song that is collective in mm-hmm. nature, that, that, that acts as if, as if our spiritual life and the community that surrounds Jesus is supposed to be an actual community and not just a bunch of individuals. Yes. So I think that's the most striking thing about Western worship in its current modern form is that it's incredibly individualistic. Very. It's incredibly transactional. Yes. Like listen what listen to the lyrics of this one. It's very transactional. It's like you're getting something or giving something even and if you are in the presence of God, if there's something about the presence of God, then it's just you. I don't know why you came. I don't know why you came to be with a couple thousand people if you just wanted to be with God alone, yeah. you know, and just stay home. Yes. I don't know what to say to you. Uh, other things would be like in a in a communal experience of worship, in communal cultures, when you go to worship, you're not like distracted by the person who's next to you crying yeah. or distracted by the children that are speaking or distracted by the person yeah. who wants to dance. It's actually the reason that you that you gather mm-hmm. together. You gather together so that you can acknowledge one another's presence. Yes. So I think that um, value of communalism versus individualism is very, very strong in the practice of worship in those spaces. Um, but yeah, I think those those two to me are like the the kind of guiding. Like when I when I go into a space, I'm like, oh, this this is like a bunch of songs about myself. I'm not really here for this. Yeah. Well, I even think about I. It makes me laugh every time. Every time I take non-black students, particularly white students, to black church, 
and we sing I Need You to Survive. And you have to like look at your neighbor and sing a song about how because you are a part of the community of the saints, you, I need you and you need me and we're a part of this body, like we need to stand together. And watching the discomfort on their faces of having to acknowledge another human person in a space and like sing a song to them as though that person has dignity and value, it tells me a lot about what they think worship is. Because like we're really comfortable in Western spaces making God big and far away and then our neighbor becomes small and far away. Like I, one of the things I've been laughing about as I look at worship trends lately is, you know, we had 10,000 reasons and Hillsong was like, you know what, hold my beer or, or black water as Jerry Falwell would say it and gave us or a hundred billion times like that God can be so big and so far away that like you're trying to worship a God that's so far from you that how could your neighbor mean anything in that way? And so I think I've been experiencing a lot of that sort of abstraction. I also see a lot of themes around like dealing, like, because I think that all communities have some kind of theology of sin or some theology of brokenness. But I think in Western white spaces, oftentimes that is, again, abstracted to individualistic sin rather than like corporate things that are harming the community yeah. that we need to be rescued from. And so instead of being like, God rescue us from this evil, we're like, burn me to a crisp, throw me into your oven. God, your burning fire is going to make all the stuff that's bad in me good again. And I just don't understand. Oh, I think I do understand, but I don't see the appeal. And so I'm just realizing that there are so many ways that whiteness and all of its values just get exported through our theology in ways that, like you said, are creating internalized racial inferiority globally. And that is so upsetting. <laughs> so it's so upsetting. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I was trying to think, I was like, why can't I think of any songs? Because what you're saying, I mean, typically, I like a lot of songs in my mind. And I realized that I haven't really been work listening to worship songs in the last, well, probably year. I, it's just, um, I do listen to songs that are given to me from like, I have a lot of friends who are, for example, in South Africa mm -hmm. or in Kenya, and they send me music like, hey, we're working on the song or, you know, people are working on stuff they send to me. I love that kind of yeah. stuff. A friend of mine, Chantel Vernado, she just released a CD. So I was like, oh, I'm listening to her stuff. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff that the um, folks that were doing the InterVarsity Lives were doing, they wrote some of their own music. So anytime someone's writing their own music, I'm like, yes, let me listen to it. But I'm not interested in whatever is popular on the radio, mm -hmm. um, on the top 100 or Spotify or um, you know Amazon Music, whatever's there. Because I just I just feel like it's going to be the same, 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 yes. same, same thing. Same six chords, um, same woman's voice, same man's voice, <laughs> same crescendo, yeah. same ending. Like I can tell you how all those things are going to end and where there's going to be like a spontaneous solo. Yes. And, I mean, I'm just tired of it, you know? Um, so I, I couldn't think of any any music for that reason. But I think part, uh, part of it is just artistically, it's so boring, oh you gosh. know? Like there's just, um, I think when we... When we have music that is so produced, because it really is a, it really is an industry. Mm -hmm. Like it is an industry, so therefore there are these twelve writers, or no, let's say there's twelve. There's twelve writers on these six in these six different churches on these three mm -hmm. continents that are writing all the music, exporting it all over the world, and colonizing everyone. And the rest of us are just like eating it up. Yes. You know, we love it. Um, and it's because it's actually designed to do that in the same way that a McDonald's fry has like I don't know, and then I have no idea what they put in those fries yeah. really. 
but they're addictive. They're actually made to be addictive. Yeah. They're scientifically modified to be not really a fry yeah. in a way that your children will want to keep eating yes. them. And the chicken nugget, I don't know what is Call in me, that nobody thing. You know, like, so anyway, all that to say that they create them so that you want more. Yes. They create them in a certain way. And so I think that actually the industry is creating music in such a way that you, it's like, it's it's catchy in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So you just, it's a formula. It's literally yes. a formula. And if you want to write music outside of that formula, well, then good luck trying to get it published, yes. you know, um, or trying to get a hearing for it. And then if you're a person of color who has a theology, for example, of community or a theology of justice or a, a theology of, of transforming the world or anything, like anything that's in the Bible, like... <laughs> That's not just you and Jesus, you know, on a cuddling somewhere where, or God really far away, either one, then good luck. And yeah. so I think it's, it's very disturbing because the breath of, for example, just, just even in the scriptures, the breath of emotion and experience and poetry that's mm-hmm. in the Psalms. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. If we have various types of Psalms and in the Psalms, if at least 40, I think 50, at least 40% of them are lament psalms mm-hmm. and we have no songs of lament. Yes. And when we do have songs of lament, they're only individualized yes. and they're not communalized. So we can't say, you know, Jesus, like what the is happening yeah. here? Like That's... there's no song to cry out, you know? Um, and so we end up just wailing at church. That's yeah. what we do. We just wail. We just cry out to Jesus and then we sing our songs in between the wailing, which is another mark of cultural worship. Like I used to tell people like, yeah, you know, you think you're doing black gospel worship. You think you're doing like Latino worship, but you're not no. actually. Because first of all, that song would have lasted 15 minutes instead of yes. five. And second of all, the song is really just like a diving board for the actual encounter with yes. God. You, The song is just the spring. Yes. And then you utilize the words of the song to spring into songs of deliverance, yes. songs of prophetic words, um, songs of healing silence you know whatever is coming but but it's not the actual thing yes whereas in white in in western forms of worship because form and structure is so important whether it's a hymn that has four parts and uh you know key change between three (laughs) and four or a contemporary song that seems like it's free but actually we already know the formula and we could tell you exactly where the worship leader is going repeat the tag the last one three times and then end really slowly you know i think that we don't have what we need yes. in our Christian experience to interact with God in a way that keeps us connected to God. Mm-hmm. We don't have what we need for our Christian experience to connect to God and to, to encounter God in a way that connects us to God. For we just, which I think is why we also have a lot of people that are like, God's not for me. Jesus is not for yeah. me. Spirituality is not for me. And it's because the type They've been given like, I don't know, like Cheetos. This is like spirituality. It's Cheetos. It's packaged. It's crispy. It stays forever. You can have it on a shelf for 17 years. You always know what you're going to get when you get a Cheeto. There it is. There's your Cheetos. And what they really need is like a full meal. You can only live on Cheetos for so long. Yes. And then pretty soon you're like, you know what? This is not really speaking to me and what I'm going through. This doesn't address the sadness and the the revulsion that I experience when I watch children being caged yes. in our world. This doesn't express the darkness that I feel when I am preparing to be a foster parent. I learn how many children in our in our world are abused verbally, physically, and sexually. It doesn't 
help me encounter that darkness that we have inside of us. It doesn't help me deal with the anger that I feel when I know that racism is not something of the yes. past, but systemically, intentionally planned yes. to continue a genocide over time. This is not a religion or a faith or an experience of God that helps me understand yes. the world that I live in. So yes. I'm out of here. And I could totally understand that. And so I think if we had rituals, spaces, practices, creativity, yeah. art, sounds, smells from other cultures, we could probably yeah. have everything we yeah. need. I think God has given us everything we need. Um, so I don't think it's just a matter of like, I feel left out. Mm. Yeah. We're left out. No. Could you please let us in? It's not like that for me at all. It, I think it is, uh, it really is, we're not giving people what they need to survive this world that we live in until all of it is renewed and transformed and whole. Yes. We have to live here. Yes. Yes. And figure out how to <laughs> we do have that. To live here. <laughs> so that's, I think that's, that's my whole thing is like, can we just have a space? where we can come together in community. Can we just give people some practices that can help them deal with the things that come yes. in on a weekly basis? Because yeah. I'm barely hanging on here yes. and yeah. I design this stuff. You know, like um, I'm barely hanging yes. on here and I teach this stuff. So I think I'm looking just for yeah. freedom. And it feels so much like when we make an industry of that practice, it's so hard to get free. It's not even thinking about how I'm seeing that happen right now as it intersects our, our this, this social and political moment that we're in, where I'm watching the Sean Foyts of the world erecting stages at George Floyd's memorial. And I'm, I'm assuming that that's going to make people free, that that's going to save the world when the community's right there doing worship by loving each other and by connecting with each other and by grieving and lamenting. And so I just think that what you're saying in this, even in like the, I love that you um, have been using the metaphor of unhealthy food in various capacities, like corporate unhealthy food to describe what this is like, because I think that's so true and we're seeing that. And I think one of the things that's, that's been concerning me is that in the moment, in this moment where it is now popular and like cool to be involved in justice -y things, I'm seeing that that food repackaged as though it's just like seeing what yeah when I watch organizations like Bethel launch something like Maverick which has some great music and some great stuff but it might just in some situations it might just be like putting black faces on it's the same thing and so I feel concerned that because we're putting tokenized black faces on the same old thing we're calling it freedom and then we're having the same kind of nostalgic experience that a lot of us experience when we first started following Jesus in western spaces and then we're when we don't feel right about that and criticize and go like actually i don't think that thing is it we end up being told that we're against the movement that's for us in some way i've been told that as a black woman like that my not being on board with that sort of thing and that's not just them they're just archetypal of the issue that i'm like fighting against my own liberation i'm like no i just am not trying to eat the same shitty food all the time like i'm just not trying to do that Thank you. Yeah, no, nope, not trying to eat it. It's interesting that you said that because I didn't know, I, again, like I'm so like, I don't even connect, I don't have the stomach for most of that. So a lot of the work that I'm doing now is like I, either with learning, trying to learn from native communities in Canada or here or, or globally and smaller groups, you know, like 
all the folks that we know. But um, I told my husband yesterday, I was like, we we're looking at worship videos. And I was like, you know what? This this group, I, everyone keeps suggesting them to me. It just feels like Bethel with black with black people. Is it? And I just went to go search it. And I was like, that's why it feels like that. Because it has, in the in some sense, it's like, you know how you can go to a different country and you can find potato chips, like ketchup yeah. flavored potato chips in some countries and arroz con pollo flavored yeah. potato chips. And you got like flavored potato chip. But it's running the, the structure and the engine is the same yes. thing. The content is the same thing in the sense that it, it has a way of developing it has a theology it's promoting i just i don't see anything different there and i'm not saying that it's not that cheetos aren't bad because i'm going to tell you i love a cheeto when i'm stressed out i'm gonna eat them when i'm stressed out um but you can't live on cheetos um and so i think that those kinds of things it has like the essence of and again let me make sure i'm very clear because i don't think i have been clear I think that musical worship and singing and saying stuff to God is important. I think that is a practice that we do so that we can mobilize ourselves to Mm. true worship in the world around us. So if the things that you're singing about, if the things that you're praying about, if the things that you're practicing in your own, you know, time and liturgies you're doing at home are not filling your heart with discontent in the of the injustice and the sadness that you see in the world and mobilizing you to make a difference in the world to give more generously to love more deeply to speak up when you see things are wrong if the things that you're doing in God's presence are not fueling that for you that is not yes. worship it's not and if that's simply like i need to get before god to know that i'm like a real human being and i'm not just like you know a a, a housekeeper to my kids and i'm like it's a mother you know like the things i do before god where god comes to me and says you're my child and i love you and even if you did Mm -hmm. nothing for me i still that healing that i get that mobilizes me and frees me to be more generous more just and more um, engaged in the world around me so even the things that are our soul care which i you know, like songs of songs and psalms that help us to connect individually with God, they can do that. But if the worship that you practice, worship disciplines that you practice do not mobilize you for justice and transforming the world, being more present for your family and your neighbors, all those things, then it's it's really just not yes. worship. It's not. Um, it's just self-soothing, kind of self-indulgent, which is great, you know, get a massage or sing to yourself. Either way, you're doing good. But it's not actually... Christian yeah. worship, because what Christian worship does is actually equips you and prepares yes. you for the lifestyle of justice and compassion and mercy yes. in the world. It has yes. to do that. And so I would say if you're following a worship movement or you have a favorite singer or you have a prayer book that you love, whatever those things are, if what's contained in it, you notice is really just narcissism, then you should just toss it out, burn it you know, erase it from your library and find things that actually remind you that God is great and that God has a a role for you in the world to make it a place of justice, to make it a place of compassion and flourishing. So I I think that's what matters to me. It's like, you know, sometimes people come to me like, my church doesn't really care about X, Y, Z, and I don't know how to move them towards that. And, you know, leaders, and I'm like, well, what are you saying about? What are you praying about? How do you expect people to care about children that are being left in hotel rooms all along our borders by themselves unaccompanied? God knows what is happening to them. How do you expect them to care and mobilize yeah. and raise their voice and do something about that if nothing in their practice is preparing yes. them 
for that moment. Yes. So it's your fault as a church leader yes. and as a pastor. If you're not, your help, you want them to make this huge bridge between me and God, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me, 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 and the world, but you're not preparing them. So I think we ought to be looking for folks that are writing music, creating spaces, painting pictures, yes. creating graphics that, that lean us to see how dark the yes. world is, how much greater God is and how we can be and play a role in that. Um, I think that's what we're, that's what I'm looking for. And I, I think that's why even a song like Waymaker, like I just know the, the history and the present issue, present experience of the church in Nigeria. I just know that that song is, does not have the same meaning as people singing it in a space where there isn't persecution and death and, and a need to know that God is always present even when your life is yes. at stake. And I think that the migrants who sang that song from yes. Honduras through Mexico to Chicago, who know it in their hearts without any PowerPoint presentations yeah. or, you know, I think that they translated it and sung it because it was what they needed to sing to yes. themselves to know that even though the world they live in is very, very dark yes. and overwhelming, God is a yes. waymaker. He's a miracle worker, light in the darkness. Yes. You know, that's what, so when you take that song out of, when you Columbus that song out of its context and take it other places, it's not that it's not meaningful for everyone. We, we all go yeah. through hard things. I'm, I go through hard things, even though I have significantly more freedoms and wealth and privilege yeah. than the people that I uh, love in my community. But I want to honor the place that that song yes. came from and not just commodify yes. it. And I'm afraid unintentionally or intentionally doesn't matter. The impact is that it's been commodified. Yes. And the impact is just practically is that the people who actually wrote the song were erased from, from the song altogether. Yes. Yes, That when songs that have such deep meaning and purpose and value become about one's addiction to pornography and being free from it, it's like, well, yeah, that's great. Do that. But can we lean into the broader freeing movement that those songs are supposed to take us through. And I just think that in an industry that exploits people's songs for their meaning, for their money, and for other people's money, there's almost no way to do that. Like, I'm convinced, and we'll talk about this more on the podcast another time, but like that we can't get free if we're addicted to capitalistic structures. And what I'm hearing in some of what you're saying is that like we can't get free if we're, as you're saying, Columbusing songs and Columbusing experiences and exploiting and colonizing people's experiences and lives. And so for me, I think a lot of what I've been doing is kind of rejecting, like I'm rejecting like what I call it, K-love worship and- Positive encouraging. Positive encouraging. I'm like, I'm rejecting a lot of that because the only, because if the system itself that that is coming out of is exploiting people, then it can't make us free. If people of color can only make it in that industry by becoming more white, is not making us free. If we're stealing songs, like literally stealing songs and profiting off of them, that's not making us free. And so I think as we close out, a lot of folks who listen probably are folks who have either given up on worship entirely, are surprised once in a while when a song hits them. And so again, I don't want to like talk shit about all like Western worship music. You know, I'll listen to a Stephanie Gretzinger song occasionally and it'll get me in some tears, you know, like (laughs) it'll connect. But I think for a lot of us, we have seen the ways that eating Cheetos all the time makes our bodies feel, makes our communities feel, 
makes us feel about God, makes us think about how God feels about us, and have abandoned the practice of worship entirely. And so for folks who have done that, do you have any recommendations or starting points to reclaim our worship from white supremacy? Yeah, I think if you come from, um, I mean, I don't know if there's a perfect way of doing this. I really don't. But I think here's some sure. things I try to do. Okay? Yeah, it's not the, definitely not I, going for perfectionism. That would be ironic. <laughs> I think I think I try to think about the the things in my community that have formed my community, not just me. So I start by taking, I think the first step of deconstructing and reclaiming is actually to decenter yourself. Mm. And so I start to ask questions like, what is important in my space, in my community? What are the songs that have been legacy, what I would call legacy songs? So I think in, in the Latina community, it would be coritos. Like, what are those coritos? What do they say? What do they claim about God? Um, what are some of the practices in, whether it's uh, the Catholicism within Latin America or the Pentecostalism within Latin America, what are some of the, the, the practices that the people that I come from, what are some of their practices and why is that important? You know, like, so I, I start there. So I think um, some of that for me in, in my own personal encounter and worship with God has been like practicing things like silence because that's a practice we should all have, you know? <laughs> I think it means singing the coritos that my grandmother used to sing to me growing up. It actually means singing songs, folk songs that aren't necessarily faith-based songs. Like yeah. they're not about Jesus, but they're just songs about our community. Yeah. So I understand how our community orients and orients itself and sees it, sees itself. And then I try to do that as I, as I lean into friendships and love other people. Like, so I have a friend who's, um, who's in uh, Cape town and she's Cosa. And so she sends me all this stuff um, like stuff she's working on, songs that, that she grew up singing. She teaches me. She mentors me in that area. And I'm like trying to find out, well, where does that come from? And why is that sung that way? And, and you know, learning, I think, in a way that I'm decentering the industry, decentering myself. Okay. Really, I'm just like, who are the people that I love, that I trust, that I value, that I want to influence me in some way? Um, and... And sometimes that means they're going to give me a song. I'm like, uh, uh-huh. absolutely. I don't really want to sing that song because, you know, Chris Tomlin makes me mad. But I want to know why they're leaning into that song. Yeah. Like, why is it that that song is? So I try to also pay attention to, like, is there a contemporary song that seems to really be, like, you know, like being grabbed by people? Like, why is it? What is it in the lyric or the experience of the song? Because I'm trying to learn about what is the Holy Spirit doing in the moment, in this yes. moment in my community. So I think those are some things I do. Um, I look out for other um, songwriters. So, I mean, I follow, you know, Common Hymnal. I follow Porter's Gate. I follow kids in my community that are making beats, you know, like I like mm -hmm. try to pay attention to what they're doing and what they're posting and why. And then even if, again, like even if they're not songs necessarily that name God, um, I mean, the whole book of Esther doesn't name God and God is very present. So yes. I'm trying to figure out where is God present in this movement. There are, there are um, also like um, in South Africa and in, and in Kenya, there are protest songs that they sing. Yeah. You know, so I try to pay attention to like, how are those formed? Who formed them? Like, so I think I'm just listening and paying attention and trying to, I mean, we have so much access because of YouTube that all your friend would have to do is say like, oh, Sandra, listen to this. And then they put the link there for you and you listen to it. It's not that hard. Um, I try to follow certain people on Instagram. So I, I follow Lusanda. You can follow my yeah. Facebook or my IG and you'll see. But I follow other people to see what kind of art they're posting and why it's striking yeah. to them. I think this is also true for like intergenerational things because, you know, I'm old. 
So I'm like, I don't know why people like what they like now. It's what's happening in our culture right now. How should I be leaning into that? And then I don't judge myself when there are songs that are have been very formative for me in my own journey with Jesus. Like the hymn, It Is Well, mm-hmm. has been so formative for me. Yes. So I'm not going to be like, I can't sing that song because a white person wrote that song. You know, sure, like, of course. That, that's not helpful. But I think I, I need to leave room for there not to be a lot of absolutes in, in the way that I encounter God. And then I look for other ways. I'm just on a journey. I think I'm just on a, on a journey and on a quest of like, what are the things that most connect me with God? Yes. So for example, I ride my bike a lot. I'm not like much of a, of an exerciser, but I really like Zumba and I really like to ride my bike. And I'm going to tell you, I think when I was doing Zumba a lot more often, when we could be together in person, it was really about being one with my body. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think Zumba and yoga help you like be one with your body. Mm-hmm. So now I'm doing a lot more yoga, but it's like being attentive to my physical body because yes. this body is the one that my, this body is the one that my spirit lives in and my soul lives in. Yes. And this is the, this is the body I'll have Yes. in, in, in life everlasting. This is my body. So yeah. I'm going to have it. Um, and it's, it's mine and it was given to me for a reason. So how do I take care of my body and be attentive to my body? And I think Zumba, because it is such a you know, the way you move and yoga, it just makes you really centered in your body. Yeah. And I think when I bike ride, I, I actually like watch people and I, or just watch around and I end up in a very prayerful state. So I yeah. do most of my praying actually while I'm bike riding. Yeah. Um, so I think looking for things in your body that help you to acknowledge Christ in you. Yes. I think that is what you also want to be doing. Yes. Um, and sometimes it doesn't require music or words. It requires you being attentive to your own body. Yes. And I think that's not taught. That is not Western. That is not taught to us in our church experiences um, here in the U.S. Uh, through white evangelicalism and other white spaces. Um, we're very disembodied. So I think yes. part of reclaiming, part of reclaiming that is like being present in myself, in my body and being present in my space in the land. So very physically, like this is my city. What do I know about it? Who was here before them? Who was here before them? Who was here before them? And who was originally here? Yes. Um, And even when we travel with our kids, you know, road trip, because no flying now, um, we try to teach them along the way, like this is where we're at and these were the people that lived here and this is what happened and now here's who lives here. And they're five. They don't, you know, they're not paying attention, but... But we feel like that's a practice we want to have. So as they get older, they say, you know, one of the things we did because we're Christians is that every time we went somewhere, we acknowledged who was there and who had come before. Yes. As a part of acknowledging that we are human beings that live in a body and a space and a place. Yes. Um, So anyway, I think those are things, I don't know that they're, they're not music related, but I think those are things that I could encourage people to do as, as they're on their journey. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's so great because so much of Western interpretations of what worship is are only about music and only about song. And then the songs become bankrupt because they have no implications, like we've said before. And so I think to actually, for me to actually enjoy music again, like I've take, I took a long gap before I met common hymnal folks and started doing music with them where I wasn't doing anything around any of it. In this time now, because I've been doing like protest work and activism work and anti-white supremacy work. I found myself newly connected to old Negro spirituals where my people sang songs while they were forced to work Mm -hmm. and they found God in that place of 
of darkness. And I'm like, okay, well then how, how are we finding God in the songs of, in the chants of protest? I've been listening to like Mahalia Jackson stuff. How does, how does her soundtrack to the words of the civil rights movement change me? How does that shape me right now? And so I think that what you're talking about is re-embodying in a significant way that actually, I think, gives us an on-ramp to enjoy musical worship in a different way again, because it doesn't become the only way or the one right way to experience, know, or give reverence to who God is or to acknowledge who God is in the world. And so I really appreciate what you've brought, folks, because I think you're bringing something that offers an opportunity to more life. And I know that as we think about reclaiming our theology, it can seem very abstract, like re thinking about the study of God or who God is, but I'm like, oh, it's something that's in our body, something that we do. It's not something that we just think. And so while we start with words like this in a podcast, the reality is like, it's the stuff that you're talking about. It's bike rides and parenting and going on walks and marching in a protest and eating a good meal, like a real good meal. It's That's all worship. of those things. It's worship. <laughs> good meals are worship. Yes. And you know what? It's the, This is the bottom line for me. I have been doing uh, ministry and activism for a long time in my neighborhood and nationally and connected to the global church for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I have found that I will not survive I will not actually, this is not sustainable without having a, a fierce and a deep connection with God. Yes. It's just not possible. You cannot stand against evil and you cannot push back darkness in your own strength. You can't. Yeah. And so everything I can do to remind me that God's strength is made perfect in my weakness and that it's, God, it's, the, it's, it's the strength of Jesus and the power of Jesus in me. Um, everything I can do to make that real, like to, to acknowledge that reality, I need to do it. Cause otherwise girl, I will do it on my own. You know, yes. I will, I'll do it on my own. And then I'll be a cranky mom and an awful wife and a terrible neighbor and yes. a mean ass daughter. And you know, like no one will want to be around me and I'll be tired and exhausted. And so I'm already tired and exhausted. So I need to be connected to God. We yes. all do. All, that's true for all of us. The work yes. of justice is not sustainable without worship. It's just yes. not. Well, Sandra, thank you so much. It's been such a delight to have this conversation with you. And I think you're giving people pathways around the toxicity of what we've been taught that worship is in Western spaces. And I think on the other side of what you are offering us, there is freedom. So I'm curious, is there anything you want to plug before we go today? Anything that you have coming out or doing right now? Um, well, we do have, um, we're working on some stuff with Chasing Justice. We're doing some master classes um, this fall. And one of them that we're doing in particular is on spirituality and justice. And we're interviewing some folks and having them share a little bit about their journey in justice and how their spirituality and kind of connection, deep connection with God has helped sustain the work of justice. So mm. I think that would be a great thing for people who've listened to this to, to connect to as well. Awesome. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. Honestly, I said everything I wanted to say on the front end already, so I don't have much to say to you than what we say every week, which is that I hope that through this work and through both the reclaiming of our theology and the deconstructing of toxic things in our lives, that we would be able to do a little bit better together. Have a good one, y'all.